Hey everyone, if you're like me, I bet you have a project or projects you want to finish, a writing project, or a writing project that you're itching to start, and we have an answer for you at NaNoWriMo. It's called Camp NaNoWriMo, and it happens in July, so you can sign up now. It's free. Go to NaNoWriMo.org and sign up. And the great thing about Camp NaNoWriMo is it has all the flavor and community of NaNoWriMo. Uh, it has a goal and a deadline approach, but it's not about writing a novel necessarily unless you want to write a novel. You can set your word count goal for 10 words or 10,000 words or, I don't know, maybe 10 million words. I haven't tested that one. But try it out. Goal and deadline is uh, create a midwife. Uh, keep writing during the summer. Great time to even use this time of July to plan your NaNoWriMo novel. So pick a creative project that gives you joy. And sign up on NaNoWriMo.org, and I hope to see you in NaNoLand in July. Welcome, daredevils, plungers, leapers, divers, and all other forms of risk takers. I'm Grant Faulkner. Cautious when it comes to extreme sports or anything physically risky, but I like to think of myself as a creative risk taker, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner, who I feel is a natural adventurer. I know Brooke takes creative and business risks. Otherwise, she wouldn't have written books, done a TED Talk, or started She Writes Press, or joined me in doing this podcast. Uh, Brooke, do you also skateboard, surf, hang glide, or take risks like that? Nothing like that, but I will say that I am training for Shark Fest, which is the swim from Alcatraz to San Francisco coming up this August, and that is the riskiest thing I have done in probably 20 years. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, maybe we should do a follow-up show on that. <laughs> I'm hesitant to even get into the bay beyond you know knee-deep levels, so you have my deep admiration. I uh, can't wait to hear more about it. One of my favorite quotes, and I think it relates to Shark Fest, but I often use it in trying to convince people to do NaNoWriMo, comes from Jerry Seinfeld, who said, the less you know about a field, the better your odds. Dumb boldness is the best way to approach a new challenge. And and I agree with him. And I wonder if this spirit, you know, <laughs> might help you with Shark Fest as well, Brooke. <laughs> Probably. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's best not to be an expert or overthink things, you know, to just literally take a leap of faith and believe that it will all work out. And that's the story of our guest today in some ways, Crystal Marquis, who accepted a dare to write a novel in National Novel Writing Month. And then that novel turned into the best-selling novel, The Davenports. And I love stories like this because I think we, we too often put unnecessary barriers between ourselves and our creativity, such as I can't start taking photos until I take a photography class, or I can't draw until I take a drawing class. And I think we should just jump in and draw if we want to, even if we draw badly and, and badly in quotation marks, because making things is such a vital part of being human. Yeah, I so agree with that. I actually think this is kind of obviously the ethos of NaNoWriMo and, and probably this podcast too, right? This idea like you can't fulfill a creative dream, you don't start. Uh, and it's a truism that writing begets writing, uh, obviously meaning the more you write, the more you write. And you and I both know from firsthand experience that the most well-published writers we know are not necessarily the most innately talented, but rather those who just are doggedly purposeful in the mm -hmm. pursuit of their creative expression. And I just think that's always an important reminder because it's really easy to think that other people have some sort of magic access to creativity that you don't have. But I know from experience in this space that it's really about feeling the fear or feeling the resistance and then pushing through and doing it anyway. Yeah, perfectly said. And and I even think that the 
magic access to creativity, as you perfectly put it, you know, a person who has that or feels that, or even if we kind of project that upon them, that usually comes from practice, you know, practice creates your attunement to that magic. In other words, it creates moments of recognition. And that reminds me of a conversation I recently had with Vanessa Zoltan about finding the sacred in the secular. That's her phrase. And Vanessa, she's an atheist chaplain of all things. I didn't know that existed, but I'm intrigued by it uh, because she wrote this fascinating article for Slate last fall titled, Don't Just Write a Novel This November write a bad novel. And I initially smarted when I read her article. She, she critiqued NaNoWriMo for a message on our website that touted successfully published novels such as Sarah Gruen's Water for Elephant and Aaron Morgenstern's The Night Circus as prods to participate. You know, she saw us reassuring participants that a month of wacky writing with abandon could lead to commercial success. But Vanessa said that the lure of successful authors was misguided, that the purpose shouldn't be to create with the market in mind, but with gusto in mind. And that is our purpose and our message, of course. But sometimes I think we we do feel like we need to show our worth through the validation of publications and published authors. And, and Vanessa rightly points out that, that art for art's sake is validation enough because you are doing something sacred. She says, and I'm quoting her from the article, writing a novel is a belief that you being you is in and of itself a worthy thing. It's faith that even if it never turns into anything but itself, it was worth the time and practice of writing the thing anyway. And that's something that your job, your boss, and the marketplace really don't want you to believe. So this is all to say that, that diving into an endeavor is, is, is one way to find the sacred or the magic in the secular. And I think, I think all of us should give ourselves more space to dive into things, whether it's taking creative risks, emotional risks, or swimming from Alcatraz to San Francisco in a cold seawater filled with sharks. So, <laughs> so Brooke, what do you think of this notion of finding the sacred in the secular through our creativity? Yeah, I mean, I love the notion of that because we all hold things that are sacred to us in our lived experiences, of course. And writing is one of the most fundamental ways that we all have to self-express. And I think there are more people writing as a form of expression than there are doing things like photography or art or film. And that's because the barriers to entry are very low. All you need is your mind and a pad of paper and a pen or a word processor and you're off. And I've heard people say things like writing is their church. I know it can be a holy experience for people, whatever holy means to you, right? I mean, you said sacred, otherworldly, divine. And writing is a place that allows us to go inside of ourselves and we can see what's there. You access your heart when you go into your writing, your emotions. And in that way, I think it is so profound. And yet we really easily take it for granted or we can have really negative feelings about it. People I know from my work with writers, of course, like you're more likely to get down on yourself or feel alienated from your writing than you are to be in flow. Uh, so I'm really happy that we're talking about the topic of risk because risking takes us out of our comfort zone and then shakes things up. And that is exactly what writers need who are feeling in that stuck place or alienated space. Uh, so perfect topic to talk to Crystal about when we get to the interview. But Grant, what's a risk or two, you know, something either you've done or planning to do to, you know, shake up your writing or do something fun? 
Uh, it's less about my writing, I think, but tangentially related. Um, I'm doing a couple things. A friend who I actually actually don't know well, uh, but we were uh, joking around about something in an email exchange, and I don't even remember what it was, but we mutually came up with an idea of a bingo game for writers. So we're actually making it. Uh, we're coming up with a you know different writing experiences for each of the squares, and we're going to design and sell it, and I don't know, be dumb and bold and see what happens. And granted, I've, I've done similar things before, uh, but I've never personally invested in an endeavor like this, you know, to see it from scratch to finish product. So I think this is a little bit like self-publishing a book in some ways. And then I've also had a goal for a couple of years now to do an open mic uh, stand-up comedy. I think I probably mentioned that in some way on this podcast before, but a friend of mine was going to join me in this endeavor a few years ago, but then COVID happened. Then I was too busy and couldn't do it, but she did it. And she did a hundred open mics last year, which I find so inspiring. And now she performs nearly every night. And um, so, yeah, she's been an inspiration to me. So that is still on my list. And uh, per my line earlier that it takes practice to find access to creative magic. I think it's good to put yourself in possibly embarrassing or uncomfortable situations. So I'm actually holding, myself to this promise from several years ago maybe we can both check in in august brooke how about you <laughs> <laughs> i think that sounds like a good plan yeah because right now i'm seeing her being like oh my gosh i have so much training to do and i was thinking that one of the things that's risky for me is like this public accountability because that's true for my memoir too uh like i'm i've said i'm doing it and my dad has been sick and so i haven't written very much um but then you get back on it right and i'm feeling that way about both my writing and the swimming so that's good uh and so there you go that's my risky thing is the public accountability uh that's what i got for now and let's see what crystal has to say i think she has more more and better advice beyond that. So hang on, dear writers. We will be right back after our favorite little ditty. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. I am very excited to welcome Crystal Marquis to Right Minded. Crystal happily spends most of her time in libraries and used bookstores. She studied biology at Boston College and University of Connecticut, and now she works as an environmental health and safety manager for an online retailer. She's also a writer, of course, and a lifelong reader. Crystal began researching and writing on a dare to complete the NaNoWriMo challenge, and that resulted in the first partial draft of The Davenports, her new debut novel. Uh, when not writing or planning trips to local bookstores to discover her next favorite romance, Crystal enjoys hiking, expanding her shoe collection, and plotting ways to create her own Jurassic Park. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a treat, and it's a it's an extra special treat for me to talk to authors who, who've participated in NaNoWriMo. So I wanted to thank you for mentioning NaNoWriMo in your, in your bio and in your acknowledgments. And I, I first read about it in an interview. I think it might've been on Publishers Weekly that you'd done NaNoWriMo. So I was thrilled when I saw that. And I'm intrigued by the, the, the origin story of, of the Davenports that you started it on a dare to complete NaNoWriMo because it sounds like you were being somewhat spontaneous and just open <laughs> to the world's opportunities, I guess. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that dare and then what was your experience of writing a novel in a month like? 
I am a big reader, and I had been in a reading slump for quite a couple of months. And my brother, who is like a great participator of NaNoWriMo, let me know that he was doing it in the fall. And he challenged me. He said, you can't find the book you want to read. Why don't you write it? And I thought about it for a couple of weeks. And I think it was fate that I came across a photograph of the son of C.R. Patterson, who was the inspiration for my novel. Uh, he was standing in front of an automobile with a tagline, first and only African-American owned automobile company. And I was like, oh, that's a story I want to read. Finally, I found something to cure this reading slump. And I can, you know, get over this and enjoy like my favorite pastime. And I found that I couldn't find a lot of information about him or stories similar to his lifestyle. And so when NaNoWriMo rolled around, I was like, okay, I'm going to write a story about this, about what this person's life could have been like. And in the research that I was doing leading up to the start of NaNoWriMo, I found out that Mr. Patterson had three daughters and that really helped focus what I wanted to write the story about. I wanted to imagine what these young girls' lives were like. And so it started out with the challenge of, okay, I'm going to start a habit and I am going to try and write every day. And my brother would write with me. We would block out times in our calendar or maybe he'll come over and we'll sit on, like, on opposite sides of the living room floor and write with each other. And it was a lot of fun. And I think that it really helped spark that curiosity for writing. And let me know that I needed outlines because, you know, I did get stuck. But I really enjoyed that community that comes out of NaNoWriMo. The, the breakout rooms that people have and the chat rooms. And even especially the letters from people who had been there before. Who are writing. It was a lot of fun to do that. Well, so I love that the Davenports is inspired by this real life story that you discovered. And as you know, most people know, following Reconstruction, Black Americans, both freeborn and formerly enslaved, carved out their own paths and enjoyed successes. But those things are rarely taught in U.S. schools. And yet you discovered this story and you wrote it as a novel, but also as a romance novel. So can you talk a bit more about that aspect of it and how that came to mind for you? Yes, of course. Um, so I decided to write it as a romance novel because that's primarily what I read, what I enjoy. And I also feel that in romances, especially young adult romances where the characters are falling in love for the first time, we really get a sense of who they are and who they want to be. And I think that is something that's very relatable, especially for young adults, but I think adults too. I think falling in love and trying to decide the kind of person you want to be and the life you want to lead is relatable at any age. And a novel mostly because I did find it difficult to find a lot of information on that time period. I feel like in school, like you said, it's not taught a lot. I feel that we get a lot about the Civil War and then we skip to the Civil Rights Movement and everything that happens in that almost 100 years in between is skipped over. So I think a novel is a fun way to present that information. I wanted the story to be fun and light and celebratory, but also not really hide some of the barriers that Black Americans had at that time. 
So like that was really my focus. Well, Crystal, I want to um, keep kind of talking about those romance elements because you you structured the novel around um, the four sisters. And I'm very intrigued by, I guess, why you chose that structure of telling the four stories. And then, you know, t- t- telling multiple stories from different points of view in a novel is always challenging because you have to make sure that they're they're complementing each other or contrasting each other in the right way. So I'm just kind of curious how those stories fed into an the overall arc and themes of the novel. And then, and then I have to note also that I'm just quite charmed that you and your brother <laughs> on the, on the, on the subject of siblings that you wrote together, whether, whether online or in person. And I think that that just speaks to such a wonderful way to write. Yeah. I really enjoyed being able to write with him and have that in common. I think one of the themes in addition to the romance in the novel is the siblingship and the relationships were really important to me. And having the four different points of view, I think, allowed me to explore how siblings can be in the same household, but have their own personalities, their own goals. And I think that having their friends who are from different backgrounds also let me explore different socioeconomic levels. So I I was happy that I got to present those different stories, and it was really it was a little bit of a challenge trying to write those four storylines and have them kind of work parallel to each other. But there are some instances where characters make decisions that would affect another one of the points of view that we read from. And I think from my NaNoWriMo experience that I realized that the outline of the story really helped a lot. And I did each character's arc separate, but then I wrote the story, like the chapter outlines the progression of the story together. And I really liked thinking of ways to bring them in the same room, whether it's a party or a dinner. Um, That was a lot of fun. Well, Crystal, could we talk more about that outlining process? Because I think you've now mentioned like that's one of the things that you most learned uh, that perhaps you're not such a pantser and maybe you are more of a planner. Um, And can you speak to that part of it? Because this whole thing um, is that you wrote these four different characters outlines after you wrote the draft, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd love to hear a bit more because I think people waver between whether they should or shouldn't outline or they discover, you know, that outlining is actually helpful. Some people find it limiting. So what's your whole experience of now being an outliner? The other times that I've done NaNoWriMo, I was a pantser, and those were a lot of fun. Um, I think for this particular story, I kind of needed that guidance. I I think it helped me a lot with characterization and figuring out the different goals for my characters. The four young girls, they have very, like, defined ambitions and wants for their lives. So I think when I was writing the story... I kind of put myself in each girl's shoes and I use that as my motivation to get her to the end of the chapter. And then I would switch to the next girl. When I did it as a pantser for a different story that I wrote, that one I saw kind of like a movie in my head and it just came out of me. That that was one of the few times I actually hit the 50,000 word girl and I was so excited about that. I think it really depends on the story. I think each story needs something different, maybe a different approach. 
um, for the Davenports because I was telling from four different points of view and um, each girl had their own personality and goals, it was easier to go back and do that line. But I did have a very broad view of where I wanted the story to go and how each girl's story was going to turn out. Um, one of the biggest changes that came from that first draft to going back was the relationship between Olivia and Ruby. Um, Ruby was initially a frenemy to Olivia. They didn't get along and they were both competing for suitors. And when I rewrote it, I rewrote them as best friends in a more supportive and loving friendship. Well, Crystal, I read that you now plan to make the Davenports into a series. And so I'm curious how you went from that initial dare to the novel and now to a series. And then what can readers expect in the next chapter of the Davenport story? And I'm also curious, is there, do you have a favorite character among the sisters that you're going to focus on more? Oh, that's such a good question. I don't know if I have a favorite. I think each one of the girls has like a little bit of my personality that I, I love how it turned out in them that I don't think I could necessarily pick one who's my favorite. I think when I started writing it, I related more to Olivia um, as the eldest, like I'm the oldest of four. So like, I feel like I really related to her struggles, but towards the end of the the novel and writing it, I I think I'm more like Amy Rose and like just developing her character. I feel like I have a really strong affinity for her, but it's really hard for me to pick my favorite. Um, and then, I'm sorry, I forgot the first question. Oh, I was just curious how it went from dare to novel to series, you know, how, mm -hmm. how you took those. I mean, obviously you told about how dare to novel, but the series part, how did you decide to go from the novel to the series? Was that part of the original conception? You know, and I think especially since it, it, it started out with uh, kind of its origin story was in history, actually real history. So I think when I was writing the Davenports, I got to a point where I realized that there were so many more details I wanted to tell, not only about the history, because it was during a time of great change, but also with the characters. They're all falling in love for the first time. And I think wrapping up all their romances in a neat little bow at the end of the first book it felt like it was too soon too quick they had a lot of growing to do and then there is also the history of that time it was right at the beginning of the great migration um there's all this turmoil from jim crow and redlining and black codes that was making its way from the south to um the north and i felt like that would create a lot of change and conflict for the characters, especially Olivia's character. So I felt like the girls had all these goals and ambitions that they wanted that it didn't feel like it could fit in one book unless, you know, I made like a giant, a giant book, a giant novel, which I love a long book. But I felt that I really wanted to continue with their story just because they had so much growing left to do. Well, in closing, uh, you're a relatively new writer. Um, I love what you just said about l you love long books because so many people discourage writing long books. So perhaps that's something we could get into here as we close too. But along with maybe a word on that, what advice do you have for new writers? My advice to new writers is to, you know, follow their gut and not give up. I think it's very easy to get discouraged 
about writing because maybe you don't feel like you have the background, that maybe you don't read enough, that there's a lot of, I want to say, beyond storytelling that goes into writing a novel and that can sometimes be intimidating. Um, My background is in biology and I was always the science geek and I loved reading. Reading was something that I share with my brother and with my mother. Um, but it never occurred to me that I can also tell a story and it's a lot of writing. I think you can find in your community, you can find support and there's a lot of people who just love a good story. And I think if you have a story you want to tell, don't talk yourself out of trying to tell it. That's such great advice, Crystal. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for participating in NaNoWriMo. I hope hope to see you in NaNoLand again with another novel someday. I plan to. And thank you so much for having me and allowing me to share, you know, my story and my journey with the Davenports. I really appreciate it. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Brooke, this week's book trend is about our new poet laureate, who also happens to be our previous poet laureate, Ada Limon, who just came on for a second term. And and this time it's a two-year term, not the one-year term that has been the rule of the past. And, And I find the poet laureate position fascinating because it's been very meaningful to me over the years. I really follow who it is and and what they do, and and each poet laureate has introduced me to new things about poetry, and I I love that there is an esteemed position of a poet laureate. And then that has now spawned state poet laureates and city poet laureates and town or county poet laureates, which is pretty cool, right? I've actually dreamed of starting a novelist laureate via NaNoWriMo, but I don't know if that will ever happen. But here's the thing, Brooke, I, I kind of know what a poet laureate is, and yet I don't. Turns out, Grant, I actually studied up on the position. And what it is, is a funded gift, a private gift from Archer M. Huntington, not the U.S. government, even though it's tied to the Library of Congress. And the Poet Laureate only earns $60,000, so it's certainly not a get-rich-quick position. Uh, But we've only started having Poet Laureates uh, since 1985, and before that it was more of a librarian position, which is super interesting. So the Poet Laureate is appointed annually by the Librarian of Congress, who consults with the current laureate, former appointees, distinguished poetry critics and scholars, and others who are deeply knowledgeable about poetry. So clearly it's a very prestigious position if you get it. Um, And then where the duties are concerned, it's really wide open. The Poet Laureate gives an annual lecture and reading of his or her poetry at the Library of Congress, but other Otherwise, each poet brings a different emphasis to the position. Joseph Brodsky initiated the idea of providing poetry in airports, supermarkets, and hotel rooms. Love that. Uh, Rita Dove brought together writers to explore the African diaspora through the eyes of its artists. And then Robert Haas organized the Watershed Conference that brought together noted novelists, poets, and storytellers to talk about writing, nature, and community. So really, they do a broad range of things to spread the word about poetry. 
Yeah, and Ada Limon's signature project is working on a partnership with the National Park Service and the Poetry Society of America to present poems in national parks to expose more people to poetry. And this is pretty interesting. She's also unveiling a poem on June 1st that will be engraved on NASA's spacecraft that will travel 1.8 billion miles to explore Europa, one of Jupiter's moons, as part of the Europa Clipper mission. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it is cool. And it sounds like the poet laureates have to kind of keep upping the ante, right? Like, <laughs> We all need to expose uh, extraterrestrials to our poetry, I think. But what an important step in intergalactic relationship building. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So listeners, uh, we'll pose the question to you. What would you send into space if you could? Something of your own writing. And maybe that could be food for thought until we're back in your queue next week. We hope. Uh, we're Right Minded, your weekly dose of writing inspiration. And we appreciate your loyal listenership. And we'll see you next time.